Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The Square Ball Podcast. Welcome to Podcast 122. I'm Dan Moylan. With me is Michael Normanson. Hello. And Daniel Chapman, a.k.a. Moscow White. Hello. Well, another week of ups and downs to get through, and we will pick our heroes and villains in a bit. First, uh, look out for issue nine of our fanzine, which will be out after the international break for the Millwall game. You can get that for your phone or your tablet if you grab yourself a digital subscription. Quid a month. You can read that and all the back issues all the way back to 2009. Some of it particularly inglorious all at the squareball.net. Well, here's a week that started so well, but ended so terribly and so disappointingly. Obviously, we're a couple of days on now from the Sheffield United result. How are we feeling? Has the dust settled on your existential dread just yet? Or how are you feeling? I feel a lot calmer. I feel like it's over now. It's fine. Everything. We can, we can dispense with our dreams. <laughs> I honestly, I felt a strange feeling, a sort of zen afterwards. I think I was more worried about it in the run-up to it than the actual defeat itself. It was obviously a hammer blow, wasn't it, on Saturday, feeling that, but I'm it, all right now. And we did actually play really well. That made it hard to be particularly angry about it because we should have won that game. Just as we beat Reading, we should have been a couple of goals up in the opening 30, 40 minutes and it would have been fine. I think we all let ourselves just get caught up. The hype, the occasion, the parallels was 89-90. Some fool went on the 442 website and predicted we'd win 4-1 and Jack Clark would have a Gary Speed goal, which I only, I didn't pay a lot of attention when I was writing that. So they asked me some questions and I said 4-1. I am getting some tweets off of Sheffield United fans <laughs> now. One uh, this afternoon called me arrogant. What's great though is what I like looking at is um, they're not getting any likes, retweets. He also tagged Patrick Bamford in that one. No responses, no other fans backing up. They're just shouting into the void. I'll retweet uh, it now Now you've <laughs> alerted me to it. I'll go on and draw some attention to you. Well, that would possibly make it even better that they need Leeds fans to justify their uh, their complaints about Leeds fans. But um, it was a big game. And I think what I'm feeling about it is I'm quite glad that it, it is over. Like the only really big match we have left is Sheffield Wednesday at home. That's the only one that you could really hype up as a Yorkshire derby and have that much pressure on it. So it's gone now. So all we have to do after that eight games left is try and win them all, which is a lot simpler than trying to play against the history of 89-90 and all the stuff that I think kind of got involved in the Sheffield United game. Good to see the players for the most part played the game rather than the occasion, but We'll get into the Sheffield United game, and I know it's kind of dominated and taken over our thoughts given the magnitude of it, but let's spin back because we haven't done the Reading game just yet and celebrate the fine points out of that if we could. And I mean, what a great performance that was. I was very proud of the players uh, playing the game and not the occasion. 
here as well. I thought they did well to... Uh, Very intimidating, can't it, Reading? They a real cauldron. They didn't get caught up in uh, in the hostile atmosphere of Reading on a Tuesday night. Brave, brave performance. Proud of our lads. In the last podcast, I did successfully predict this uh, this outcome of 3-0. You predicted rather boldly with perhaps tongue slightly in cheek, Moscow, 6-0. Probably should have been, let's to be fair. If Patrick Bamford wasn't just spending his days just having a laugh and was actually trying to score goals for Leeds United, I would have had those bragging rights. I like him, but he was laughable. <laughs> those, that, that spell in the second half, winning about three chances in three minutes to score a hat-trick and make it 6-0. I mean, to be fair, the, the last one was a good effort and was just the width of a post wide. So he was getting closer and closer, but that kind of, once he saw that go wide, he just thought, Pats is not scoring here at all, ever. Do you think this happened in both the games then? These missed chances just happened to cost us in the Sheffield game, whereas it didn't in the Reading game because we absolutely mullered them. Or do you think the chances maybe in the Reading game were that bit more clear cut than the Sheffield game? Reading are a much, much worse team was the main difference. The league table tends to suggest that, doesn't it? Yeah. We, it was obvious from the opening minute against Reading that they weren't going to be able, able to cope with the pace we were playing at. We just were pressing them so quickly and the speed of the passing was far too much for them. Lewis Baker was dawdling about in midfield, not getting near to anything as we became accustomed to. And it was just obvious we were going to win that game. I wasn't, I was only worried in the usual way I'm worried about Leeds, but as calm as I ever am about a result, I thought we are going to win this right from the opening minute. The players almost look like they couldn't believe it. After all the the last Tuesday night away games, QPR, where we would arrive on the edge of their box and they'd have about 20 players behind the ball that we couldn't break down. And we were arriving at the edge of Reading's box and there was about two players between us and the goal and neither of them looked interested in even doing anything. And Pablo Hernandez would just stand there going like, do you want me to just shoot? <laughs> Is that it? Shall I, just, shall I just have a shot? Really? Anybody going to? No? Well, Fine. Tony Gale was on the co-commentary for Sky that night, wasn't he? And he was uh, agog at the amount of space that was available on the field. Tony Gale's a Leeds-hating bastard, though. He uh, he had a right old winch in 1989 when we beat West Ham down at their place. And it was the game that, uh, because there was no first division fixtures that weekend because of an international break, all London's press went to see Howard Wilkinson's new Leeds with that thug Vinnie Jones and did absolute hatchet jobs all up and down how Leeds night played. And Tony Gale was the, was the West Ham player who was complaining most vociferously so... He can sing Patrick Bamford's name as much as he yep. wants. Time's a great healer, though, eh? Time's a great healer. 30-year <laughs> grudge on one game, and he was really nice about us in this game, saying how good we were. Well, <laughs> gritted teeth. If he thinks, that, thinks that's going to make up for it, he's, got a, he's wrong. <laughs> but it was impossible for him to say anything else, because Leeds were just absolutely dominant. And back to your, your question about scoring goals, it is a shame we possibly should have used that second half, well, I guess we did, as shooting practice, just it would have been better if we'd actually put some in the net and practiced that and got some, you'll get the feeling of scoring goals into Bamford and Tyler Roberts and Jack Harrison's boots. Hernandez can't score them all. Um, he's got to let somebody else have a go. And everybody else did get a go in the second half. They just, I don't know. It annoyed me that it wasn't six. I know that's a bit ungrateful for it. It was a 3-0 win by half time, but... Goal difference as well. Yeah. And it, you've got to take those chances either. I mean, it does sound really spoilt. You know, like, oh, we only won three nil by half time, and they didn't do enough. So I, I feel faintly ridiculous. But yeah, goal difference and also just momentum as well. I think if we'd have done that big six nil thing, maybe we would have just carried the the finishing through into the Sheffield United game. Not to be. I know you're very proud of your uh, prediction being correct, Dan. But you've got this one prediction right, whereas you've also predicted we are going up. We are. Through the automatic places, whereas we me are. and Moscow have called this 
correctly by saying we were losing the playoffs. Mm. So yeah, but the odds, you've got you've got one small thing right. The odds in, are stacked way in your favour. So what you're talking about? And there's two of you. The table doesn't lie, dickheads. We will go up because there's more to it than the Sheffield game. Let's move on to that one because that's obviously taken up most of our consciousness, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, we we don't need to dwell on Leeds United enjoying uh, <laughs> a fantastic victory. We've got a, a crushing, disappointing defeat to talk about. So we need to we need to get on with that. Do you think we jinxed it by talking up Cooper and Moscow? You did. You you foretold his his errors to a certain extent on the last podcast. You foretold his own as well. He did a big interview in the Telegraph just before this game saying uh, he was talking about being a younger player and not putting the effort in in training and how he, he had to learn. And he, he learned uh, the hard way that not working during the week meant you would make a mistake at the weekend. And he said, I'd, I've been that guy and I don't want to be that guy again. And then uh, Saturday afternoon... He was that guy. I don't think it's down to him not putting the effort in in training. I don't know if it's down to us or him jinxing anything. It may just be that Liam Cooper, I can't remember if I said this last time, but you always just feel that that moment against Cardiff where he just kicks somebody in the face for no reason, it's there. It's there to happen. And I feel bad about this one. Like I feel a certain amount of sympathy for him. And I'm, I'm quite glad that I've not checked his mentions on Twitter particularly, but I don't get the feeling that was like a pitchforks out to get him because... Horrible pitch, horrible conditions. Billy Sharp right up his ass, and Billy Sharp is, you know, played in training against Liam Cooper plenty of times. There was a lot against him there. Why he then uh, hoofed the ball backwards over his head, Michael Brown style, <laughs> for the second goal and got Casillas sent off when Phillips got involved with messing everything up as well. But I put that down to just how when Leeds lose, we really lose. Well, We've it, seen it this season. I was going to say, actually, if you hark back to the West Brom game, when that felt like the only game that's really properly got away from us, and this got away from us late on after that conceding that goal and maybe that's just what that that hoof was but just to return to your point there maybe what we have to look at is that these players lack that complete and utter concentration and consistency and that's why they're in this division and not in the Premier League you could argue maybe some are of higher quality like Pontus but where Liam Cooper's concerned that's the thing isn't it it's that occasional error and mistake it's the way we're playing as well you you accept that one game in 20 your centre-back does this but then in 19 games, they pass it back to the keeper, it's played out to the left, you attack, you score a goal from it. It's part and parcel of it. And the lower the level you go, the more risky this style of football is because the players are not as good and are more likely to be caught out or just occasionally miss kick it or slip or as happened with Cooper and Phillips. So I was going to say it's it's high risk football, isn't it, that we're playing? And it's generally been really good. I did actually, I was thinking at half time because I was, I think like everyone, I was perfectly happy at half time and I was thinking even if we don't win this even if we don't go up this year I am grateful to be watching this because it is actually decent to watch for a change I'm actually enjoying seeing us play like this I think that came through in the the reactions of Cooper as well you can we shouldn't dwell on the mistake for the goal or the mistake for the sending off because the, the reaction was generally it's like well everyone kind of sucked the teeth in bit the lip and just went well thanks for all the good games Liam since the and, and mean it like he has been much much better this season he's been absolute quality at the back but shit happens and it happened here and we lost but it's not a reason to beat him with the moment that ball hit the net then when Basham scored how did you feel it's unfair really to blame um, him for this but all game been reminding me of Martin Keown just the way he ran and I couldn't really see his face but I could sort of tell he was ugly from a distance <laughs> and I don't know he just had something very Keownish about him it was really annoying me he was too far up the pitch to be looking so clumsy and then he went and scored the bloody winner not fair it was it was that whole thing of uh, I knew we weren't going to get back into it after that it was just I didn't think it would get so ridiculous that we would end up with 
Pontus Janssen in a goalkeeper shirt going up to attack a corner. While injured. While injured. <laughs> Try as we, we might, I just, I just like, that's it now. Because you could feel it creeping on. It's a little bit sort of about the, the momentum with finishing from the, the Reading game. The longer we went without scoring, we've got this thing, if we score first, we win. And if we'd scored first in this game, we won. The longer we go without scoring, the more you could just see everything setting up where they had the player who should have been sent off. And you had Billy Sharp when he elbowed Pontus Janssen. You're thinking, oh, he's staying on. Yellow card, it's set up for Sharp to score after that. And those things just started adding up. So you could start feeling it just creeping. It's going against us here. And then when the goal went in, perfect. We talked about the perfect time a couple of weeks ago with the West Brom at home where it was sliced into half hour 19 minutes to go. It's just, it's a really bad time to concede a goal because you've, you can't just relax back in the game. You've got to go frenetic. And we maybe didn't go frenetic enough. Bringing the left back on. Yes. And maybe somebody telling our forwards, tell Tyler Roberts, you can just shoot. You don't have to take a touch. You don't have to go around the player. Just shoot. Question for you then. Should they have been down to 10 men? Yes. Nine. Count Billy Sharp's elbow. I know it wasn't that bad, but... Sharp had had a, he'd had a few things that he should have probably got a yellow card for as well. It was very early on, I think he, he had a little kick out of Pontus when they were just running together um, and the ref sort of just let it go. But yeah, I think the foul on Pontus that should have been a red, we've seen those given every single week. Calvin got sent off at Forest for it. And what was that guy's name? I know we've written it down as that bloke. Baldock. Yes. He, in the first two or three minutes, he went through Bamford in our half... Um, for no apparent reason, got a talking to from the ref then. So he'd, he'd done that thing of getting a tackle in, a bad tackle on Bamford. It left him down before he was going to get a yellow card. When if he'd done that on 20 minutes, he probably would have been booked for that tackle on Bamford. And then he still had one in the bank to uh, to go through Janssen. Yeah, it should have been a red card. It's over the top of the ball. It's exactly like the Calvin Phillips one. Lost control of the ball, went over the top of it, threw his leg. You can't really say it shouldn't have been. Unless you're Mike Dean, but we'll come to him later. Because I thought up to a certain level, the ref had had a fairly decent game in not going mental, but perhaps he was too lenient. What do you think? They set out from the off, I thought, to rattle us. And I don't think the ref clamped down on it enough. There was a lot of persistent fouling as well. Like Sharp had, even if you don't allow for the fact that some of them should have been yellows in, the, in themselves, he, just the volume of fouls he was racking up should have been a yellow card. Normally mm. normally you get two or three in quick succession and the ref will have a word with you and give you a yellow card. Whereas he just sort of let him get away with it. And that was breaking the game up for them the longer it went on. The second half in particular, they turned it into a, a game of just set pieces really. It felt like every, all they did was win a free kick or take a goal kick, take a throw in, just turning it all into into individual moments rather than trying to actually play it as an open game, which is perfectly fine for them to do. I'm not complaining about it, but it made it hard for us to get into our rhythm. And they had to do it because when we were in our rhythm in the first half, we were brilliant for the first half hour. Hernandez on that waterlogged pitch just looked beautiful and he was just setting up chance after chance. And um, for a team that hasn't conceded a goal in six matches before the Cane to Welland Road, for us to, I mean, we didn't get any of the one target, yes, but to have made 17 chances against them and a, a lot of those were before we were chasing the game we had enough opportunities to have done them 3-0 in the first half and then and then we wouldn't have a, a we would have been promoted already <laughs> <laughs> and on such things games turn and possibly seasons does it feel to you like the season is over it, it doesn't really I think if we play as well as that for the rest of the season we've still got a very good chance of going up or if we go into the playoffs playing like that, we'll obviously bottle it. But if we don't, then again, I don't think anyone would want to play us in the playoffs. There is a question 
about pressure now on Sheffield United because they've got to prove that they can handle it being in second and being chased. And we saw against uh, that Aston Villa match where they let a 3-0 lead go and draw 3-3 and end up everybody arguing on the pitch. They're not infallible. They look infallible at the moment, but that's the other thing as well as how many games can a team possibly go unbeaten for. Um, they're really at the limits of of what's possible, whereas we're not. We're, we're losing on a regular basis, so <laughs> we're, we're kind of not, not lulling ourselves into that security. But what I said be- before about kind of taking the pressure off the, the 1989-90 omens have gone now. We're not playing any of the teams that kind of hark back to that that era again well with no match to preview in this podcast we'll come on to sort of the run-in towards the back end of the podcast if you fancy first though quick question for you regarding Chris Wilder fair play he's done a really good job this season and he was pretty magnanimous in victory this time I mean you tell me that but I didn't I haven't seen a word he said because I just couldn't face anything about it I ignored this man was he nice about us he was pretty decent I don't care (laughs) what did he say just said that they didn't necessarily deserve to win the game. Glad, right. He's glad they did, but, you know. Bet he was. Could have gone the other way. I prefer Pat Bamford's uh, response where he calls them all just a bunch of bad winners and uh, threw a total Dean Smith-style <laughs> tantrum about them uh, celebrating too much. That's better. Go for that, Pat. Well, we're on to episode three of our new podcast, The Extra Ball, right now. Episode three is available now for you to download. It's a subscription podcast, $2.99 a month. Your first month is free. We'd love you to go along and sample it, try it out, have a listen and see what you think about it. And please stay with us as well, because what we're trying to do is make this not a part-time thing, but a full-time thing. We want to do loads more podcasting because we really, really like it. And as a starting point, we're doing The Extra Ball, which is your extra weekly podcast. And this week we are assembling a Frankenstein's monster of a footballer. It's the challenge that Lee has set us. Create the best player you can from former Leeds United players. But the rules are you can only use players from 1992 and onwards. So I want a left foot, a right foot, a head, and let's have the best haircut as well. Oh, and there's another rule. No Harry Kuehl, because he's a bastard. Any arguments with that? No, it's a perfectly fair rule. <laughs> so you can hear us doing that, assembling in a Rob Price fashion from bits of other footballers, 1992 onwards, our dream Leeds United footballer. We'll tackle that loads more as well, including the ongoing three-way battle to see who's going to win at Leeds United Soccer Supremo board game from 1991. And we'll be taking a look back at Peter Ridsdale's very strange video when you look back on it these days. Uh, My Leeds United will be having a look back at that DVD slash video in the extra ball. He's more than a fan, as any fan will tell you. Peter Ridsdale has turned the club around in the handful of years since he's been chairman. Whichever way you look at it, everyone is agreed that Peter Ridsdale and Leeds United is a marriage made in, well, Leeds. And once signed up for the Extra Ball, you can import that into one of our approved podcast players. You can also listen via the webpage on the website, or you can directly download the file to your phone. If you want to go check that out, and please do, episode three of the Extra Ball, thesquareball.net forward slash the Extra Ball. Coming up then, appear across the void of the international break. Heroes and villains on the way, but first, something we kicked off a few podcasts ago now. Moscow, you spotted Paul Butler in Costa Coffee in Knotsford in Cheshire when you were over visiting your parents. So we want to know who you've seen and where you've seen them. First up this time. Dan Clark has, um, Dan Clark's obviously a bit of a high roller, to be honest, given uh, he's um, he's been sat in a bar in Val d'Azur, France. Gary Monk walks in for lunch. So he's, he's, he's in Val d'Azur to begin with. He's eating in the same sort of places that football managers can eat. And he's, he says, given Birmingham a 13th, he ought to be more concerned with putting in some extra tactical work at home rather than skiing. You can only assume that Gary Monk ordered and then ate uh, a whole egg. He just put down his throat and then you could see moving through his body 
Because a snake, do you get it? Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, what yeah. a snake would yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Got it. And it's just practice for his season going downhill. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. Here, who has a, a Twitter handle that looks uh, remarkably <laughs> Russian, um, but I'm sure he is a real person, says he served Becchio at Primark Whoa. and uh, used his own receipt to get his autograph. Lucky, lucky person. And uh, I also saw Mark Viduka at York Road McDonald's, fresh off the plane from the Champions League. Before you ask, he's a Big Mac man. I wouldn't even need to ask. You know that without. You just know at the minute because they've got that grand Big Mac out with bacon as well. I imagine he's a fan of bacon and I imagine he's a fan of the grand Big Mac. I imagine he's just a fan of meat in all its forms. Him and Becky, I would probably have a, imagine those two getting together for a barbecue. Sod bloody Neil Warnock on his pre-season fiasco (laughs) in Cornwall. Let's get part of the centenary celebrations, I'm going to email Angus Kinnear, get Luciano Becchio and Mark Fiduca to do a barbecue in the Centenary Pavilion, cancel everything else and just get as much beef imported as you can from Argentina and Australia. Let's get it on. Maybe some kangaroo as well. And Becchio in Primark. But we also have a sighting from Dan O'Boyle, who is at DLOB17. Went to watch Spider-Man at the cinema. Second cinema sighting we've had, I think, that. Saw Danny Mills in the queue, so decided to sit next to him all the way through the film. If you'd seen Alioski, he would have no problem with him. Someone sat next to him. He'd probably hug you with Alioski. <laughs> Start stroking your leg midway through a film. You know that thing where you get a completely empty cinema, loads of seats? He would. He'd come and sit right next to you, wouldn't he? Put his hand on your leg and then just put his hand into your popcorn and smile while he ate it. Span it round. I wonder how long Alioski would sit next to Danny Mills in a film before biting his head. Just be the kind of thing he's like, that looks like a football. And that would be his first thought. 90 minute film half an hour before his teeth are sinking into Danny Mills' bald bumps. And if you've seen somebody get in touch, let us know who you saw and where you saw them. The more obscure, the better. And from that silliness, let's move on to something a little bit more sombre. The death of Bill Fotherby, aged 88. A sad occasion, as a man who had such an influence in the fortunes, the changing, improving fortunes of Leeds United. When you look back to the dream team of that era, very much uh, rooted around Silver, Fotherby and Wilkinson. And Moscow, I guess we should turn to you at this point, because you uh, you interviewed him, didn't you, for the uh, for the movie? Yes, for uh, Do You Want to Win, when we made that. Yeah, we got him. I, I couldn't work it out. I got the impression it was the first time he'd actually been in the West End or been in Elland Road at all for years. So looking back, it's kind of nice that we got him back in there. And he was certainly, he was happy to be there. He was also, he did have a a bit of a moan about why there was no coffee available and um, why things weren't being brought to him as he as he would have liked. Because in his day, obviously, things would have been different. But um, he was exactly as good value as I think anybody who's watched the film maybe uh, realises he, he had all the stories. And even, he'd obviously rehearsed them over and over again, but... They were no less sort of rich for that quality he had of just being able to reel off these remarkable tales. And he loved it. I, I think uh, the first question I asked him, I can't remember what it was, but I'm pretty sure the answer was about half an hour long. And it was about, compl- oh, that was it. I was trying to get him to talk about how we, uh, how we got Howard Wilkinson to the club. And half an hour later, he was still talking about trying to get into the 100 club and to get on the board in 1978. And uh, and he did pause and he was going, I, I don't think this is what you asked me, young man. I was like, it, it really doesn't matter at this this point, Bill. You just keep talking. I mean, a nice thing personally for from a square ball point of view that he had his, uh, he had a document holder with him and this leather sort of briefcase thing. And he afterwards, he, he, he said, if you want to know, if you want to know everything, son, he pulled out um, a copy of the square ball and said, it's all in this. And it was a copy of the square ball that John Howe had uh, been to Bill's house and interviewed him and written it up for our magazine. He said, all in there. 
Can't remember the lad's name, but he he wrote a wonderful article. The lad about as well, me. John Howe. John Howe, very much a middle-aged man. <laughs> Sorry, John. And that was great. Uh, that that uh, that was um, was something that he was carrying around and showing to people and saying, "You should get hold of this." And we took him out onto the into the west stand so we could have a look over the the pitch and get some. We filmed him up there as well. And I remember as I was shaking his hands as he was about to go back down the steps to leave. He. Uh, with his, his leather gloved hand, he just gave me, he like slapped the side of my cheek. He's like, thank you very much, son. I was like, that felt good. <laughs> that was nice. It was like the, uh, the mafia approval, but also a, a grandfatherly <laughs> approval. It's somebody with a leather glove of, uh, of his sort of, uh, demeanor slaps you on the face. You do wonder if it's going to end up with a, a horse's head in your bed <laughs> or just some presents at Christmas. And that was part of his whole, uh, um, his charisma, really. That's kind of, that's a big part of it. The, the You could feel the, the charisma that he had and you could understand why people like Gordon Strachan always tells this story of he went in for contract negotiations and he came out <laughs> agreeing to sponsor a match. But you can feel the truth behind it. And he, he had it right up until then. And he was desperate just to be involved as well. And uh, I think what sets him apart is I think that's what drove him all the way through his life because he, uh, it gets forgotten. He, he was a, he was in the youth team at Leeds in Major Buckley's era. He was a, he was a player. He'd never made the grade. And then he was a fan all his life. And then because he became a successful businessman, that was his way of getting back in. And he really worked. And it was all, it was all to make Leeds United good again. There was this point in the mid eighties when you had Leslie Silver as chairman, Bill Fotherby as managing director, and they were just going like this club that we love and support is absolutely on its ass. Billy Bremner's has not worked. What do we do? Premier League's about to happen. We've got to get leads there before the drawbridge is, uh, is pulled up. And um, with passion and with an ability to get money out of anybody and an ability to generate publicity and the pride and all the stuff about uh, 8990 being the shit or bust season generated by the, the way that they started running the club. And it worked and it was done for the right reasons and it was done brilliantly. And people forget there really was no money around in the club at that time. And even into sort of the mid-90s, despite the start of the Premier League, it wasn't a rich era and he was blagging and, like I said, the raconteur and him uh, kind of doing all that stuff. But it is worth looking at when they sold up to Caspian. Was that 96, wasn't it? Yeah. sold to Caspian. Things weren't quite as rosy in the garden then because um, famously him and Leslie Silver and the guy on the Peter board, Gilman. that's it, Gilman, the three of them, they changed the share structure of the club, which rewarded and gave them management shares, which diluted the value of the, all the ordinary shares. So all the ordinary shareholders in the club lost out on a lot of money, which at that time it was only three million quid a piece, which you laugh at now. It's, it's not even a player, is it, these days of any particular calibre. But at the time, them walking out with nine million, it wasn't looked upon that favourably at the time. And there was some nasty graffiti, I remember, on the, the walls of the underpass for the M621. Yeah. I think it wasn't really known um, because one of the things when we spoke to Howard Wilkinson for the square ball years ago, we were talking about that mid nineties period after we'd won the league and why it wasn't so successful. And he basically said that said, there wasn't any money in the club, but we didn't tell anybody because if you don't have any money, you don't, you don't tell anybody. If you do have any money, you don't tell anybody. You just play it straight. And, uh, Bill Fotherby's thing about pretending we'd won the pools. Everybody's like wondering where the money was coming from, like disguising all this stuff. And the truth of it was that Leslie Silver was, underwriting the transfers by taking out mortgages on his own house. He was personally underwriting multi-million pound transfer fees well into the mid-90s because that was the only way we could uh, afford players. So although the screwing over of the small shareholders was unpleasant, 
the fact that they took three million out having risked, I think they probably stood to have lost if things had gone wrong. Many multiples more than three million pound each uh, for how much they went all in on all this. And Fotherby, he did, uh, he quite openly says that he was the highest paid director in the Premier League um, in the mid 90s because he was on commission. And uh, his closing, his last deal when he walked away and he kept, uh, he was talking about this when we interviewed him as well, um, the Puma and Packard Bell combined deal that happened just before the Caspian takeover, basically the last big commercial deal he did, was absolutely enormous for the era. And considering we just lost the Coca-Cola Cup final 3-0, well in excess of what the club probably, if it hadn't been for him uh, having the gift of the gab that he had, I don't know how else we would have got that much money in. So in the end, like three million quid each for winning the league. I mean, we're paying more than that to be also now. So it is what it is, I guess. And you contrast with Ridsdale and they were sort of uh, wheeling and dealing and keeping the finances under wraps, whereas Ridsdale was going, look at all this money I've got. And we mentioned Ridsdale because obviously in the extra ball this week, we've uh, done a big thing on his video, as we mentioned a little bit further back in this podcast. I brought his book in as well to uh, add some ballast to that ridiculous DVD as well. And it has got the story of, uh, it's a really good insight into how Bill Fotherby worked in a way because he spotted Peter Ridsdale a little bit like himself desperate to be involved Ridsdale was sponsoring matches and getting himself into kind of the restaurant where the directors were eating before games but he was away from them all because he didn't know anybody and Fotherby kind of clocked him wanted to know who he was started talking to him oh who are you and uh, quickly found out that he's managing director of Burton so within weeks, right, he's a huge Leeds fan. He's managing director of Burn. Why don't you sponsor the team then? And Ridsdale being so desperate to be accepted by Leeds United, of course he did it. And then it was the same thing when there was a seat available on, on the board. I think we can get you on the board. Oh, how? I said, well, if you just, is this top man sponsorship going to carry on a bit longer? Well, it could. Okay. You sort that out and, and we can keep you going. And um, there's a good bit in uh, in Ridsdale's book, if I can find it, about the whole Maradona thing, which people don't uh, really appreciate. It sounded ridiculous, but Fotherby was dangerously close to actually pulling that off. I don't think Maradona ever wanted to come. Apparently Billy Bremner never wanted him, but he'd actually lined up enough that all it really needed was the ridiculous financial demands that Maradona's agent said they needed to do. He'd sort of, he wasn't far away from doing it. And then it all got a bit much. Yeah. Ridsdale challenged him about it saying that, um, because the Burton's directors were getting uh, phone calls about why this public company hadn't made a statement to the stock exchange about the six million pounds in 1987 that they were going to drop. So Leeds United could buy Maradona. And Ridsdale says, Bill, people can't go dropping in announcements like that when you're dealing with a public company, especially when there's no truth in it. Do you realise the impact of this? And Bill said, "Uh, you never know where such speculation might lead to. Look, Peter, all I said was that we had been in discussions with his agent. True, because we were. And that you were present. True, because you were. I really can't help what the press made of that. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. That's the right way, isn't it? Just enough but not too much. Love it. Let's move on to then injuries. Uh, Obviously, we've lost Pontus now for three weeks. It just feels like we're never going to have a player that's not injured at some point, does it? We were nearly there. So nearly there. He's come at a good time in so far as it's an international break, at least. So he's not missing a game this weekend. Someone did uh, on the internet somewhere said we can give... uh Berardi a few games until he's injured and Ponta should be just about ready to step in at that point. We mentioned last week, even Idiguchi is uh, is back in training. So to lose Pontus at this point, it just added to that whole 
fuck over of the Sheffield United game. Like, why we can't just lose a match? We have to go all in this spectacular, let's have the keeper sent off and let's have our best defender injured. <laughs> why don't we start a fire in the West Stand as well? It's like... Given everything, it does feel like the fates are conspiring, but I still believe we're going to go up. Not if Frank Lampard can help it. He's still still going on about Spygate. I mean, he doesn't want to talk about Spygate. He doesn't want to talk about it. We'd like to stress that. Michael, he doesn't want to talk about Spygate. So what's he been talking about? Well, do you know what, the, do you know what he should say? When people ask him questions about it, he should say, I don't want to talk about that. What's he doing instead? Talking about it. Ah, that old chestnut. <laughs> he just keeps talking about it. He's just, uh, oh, and he's trying to backtrack now as well because he's looking particularly stupid because he's barely won a game since it since it happened. He's had such a meltdown about the whole thing. But yeah, he just continues to talk about it. So, well, it's, it's not that it's not that I'm saying Bielsa's a bad manager, and it's not that you know we obviously do all that analysis ourselves. But it was just a bit. It was just a bit upsetting when the when the police arrived and there was that man with the chainsaw at the <laughs> gate, and you know. The, one of the youth team lads was crying about it. And his hockey mask on. Yeah. yeah. Blood spattered aprons. But yeah, if you don't want to talk about something, don't talk about it. I did feel his comment where he said um, that uh, working on uh, things the day before a game, I felt that's something which is a bit sacred, working in detail about the game tomorrow. That's just how I felt. So this is Frank Lampard, who's been a manager for five minutes. Marcelo Bielsa, who's been a manager for 30 years to a much higher level, thinks it's absolutely fine to watch that. So who is in a better position to make this value judgment about what is and isn't sacred about football management? I'm going to say it's not Frank Lampard Jr. I mean, Frank Lampard Jr. as well. I don't want to be a crybaby about it and then proceeds to be a massive crybaby about it still. Him saying that absolutely makes it clear that he knows that everybody now thinks he's a massive crybaby. I don't want to be a crybaby because everybody's saying I'm a massive crybaby. I'm definitely not. It's not a tantrum. Is it a little bit like that I'm not racist bot moment? Uh, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Fantastic. Let's move on to the God Rod, which is a thing we introduced some weeks ago now. If you're not familiar with the God Rod, the blasphemy baton, to give it its official name, it's all about the Lord Almighty's chosen football team. And this started when Stoke beat us because their manager, Nathan Jones, heavily religious. He summoned the power of the Almighty to beat us. Since then, Preston beat them. They then took on the mantle of the blasphemy baton and they are still unbeaten. I mean, what is that, 10 games now, something like that? Because they saw off Borough and Brom in the midweek. When we were just sat in the car waiting for you to arrive, Alex Neal was actually on the uh, Five Live and he was not attributing it to this at all. He was saying he had a lot of injuries earlier in the season. They're coming to form. They're good players. They're well-organised stuff. He's not giving any credit to this. So I reckon I'm going to make a prediction and they are going to lose this at the next game because he is basically not giving the Lord any credit for this. He needed to just come on the radio and say, look, it is not in my hands, this. So my, my words, they will lose their next game. Which is Reading. Maybe oh not my- the next game. <laughs> Maybe the game after. <laughs> when they play Sheffield United in the next game, I think. You have to feel there, particularly given everything that happened in our game, that Sheffield United might be getting shined upon by the Lord. I think... Slightly differently. I think with the power of the Lord behind them, I think they're going to beat Sheffield United and that's going to give us hope of taking second. But then they're going to beat us (laughs) and that's going to send us back into third place. And that's going to simultaneously cement Preston's place in the playoffs, just setting them up to beat us in the playoff final. That's the way I think this is, this is working. That little glimmer of hope. Job done. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On to heroes and villains right now, then. Somebody who's made us feel sad and somebody who's made us feel happy across the last week. The Ken Bates Villainy Award awarded to somebody who has made our existence that little bit worse. Something we launched back in Podcast 33 as an acknowledgement of the misery that Ken inflicted upon us. Who would we like to nominate this time around? Of course, first, Ken has his nomination. Do we have a tenuous reason? For being a 1980s football chairman who wore glasses who wasn't Bill Fotherby. (laughs) That's absolutely fine. Who else would we like to nominate? Uh, Dermot Gallagher, because he's once again defending referees from a stupid position. He was watching the back of the footage of the um, the tackle on Janssen and said it wasn't a red card, even though had the ref sent him off for that, he would have come out and gone, yep, that is a red card, good decision, ref. Every time I've seen him in action, he just seems to agree with whatever shit the decision the referee has made. I will back you up on Dermot Gallagher because assuming it doesn't get edited out, when we referred to this obliquely earlier on, I said it was Mike Dean. So Dermot Gallagher has made me look foolish <laughs> as well as making that ref seem like he did the right thing. So that's two big strikes against Dermot Gallagher. I will not stand for being made to look foolish on the Square Ball podcast. Do we want to nominate the ref himself for not doing what was necessary under the circumstances? Yes. He could have sent whatever, what's his face off, Bolduc, and he could have sent Sharp off. And could we nominate the referee from the Sheffield away game as well? Just for a little bit, because I'm sure it was Ender Stevens and there was another one who should have been sent off in that as well. Mm-hmm. So there should have been four red cards. And he could have not sent Kiko off, because obviously now you're going to have to see Billy Peacock Farrell back again. Um, and I know you won't be pleased about that because of, um, obviously you previously tried to ruin his career. So you probably have to re- you could probably do a re-edit of that video. Well, what's good is got a ready-made video available that he put out when Viedvald was, uh, you know, looking mm. a bit crap. Just and, needs to bolt on yeah. some some of the more recent clips. Probably scour the under twenty three, see if he's see if he's dropped any crosses or anything, um, and just paste those right in at the end of it. We see now there are quite a library growing of uh, 
evidence of Bailey Peacock Farrell smiling. And I'm wondering, do please continue to tweet them at me, even if I don't always reply. I do actually enjoy every instance of Bailey Peacock Farrell, even either the ones from Saturday were of him striding past all the school children that uh, Bielsa had just given lollipops to, ignoring them all. Or there is a very cute photograph of him uh, smiling at a, a kid who'd come to meet him. I think he's maybe he's, he's thawing out a little bit. I think part of uh, Bielsa's strategy for taking about the team and putting Keacock Kassir in was not just the pressure of the championship, was maybe restricting his ability to grow as a goalkeeper, but also so that he could perhaps grow as a person and fucking smile every now and again. So we may see a happy new look. Bailey Peacock Farley might do that Bruce Grobler thing of coming out with like a clown wig or something. Walking on his hands. Exactly. So I'm quite looking forward to seeing Bailey Peacock Farrell back for that reason. But again, going back to the Casillas sending off, Billy Sharp was not getting to that ball because he is short, fat and slow. (laughs) So... That, and that's why... There's nothing wrong with being those three things. <laughs> oh, not at all. But if you are a professional footballer and Calvin Phillips is... You're in a race against him for the ball. Billy Sharp... I Waddling he, through the channel like that. He did like make... treacle uh, through treacle. He did make some kind of comment. He says, oh, the keeper decided to bring me down. No, you saw that there was absolutely no way you were getting to that ball. So you ran through Casilla and engineered that foul. So all this business of like, oh, it was a clear goal-scoring opportunity. No. Billy Sharp was not reaching that ball. He was not scoring that goal. He did mention in the post-match about going down, that he, he gave him the chance to go down kind of yeah. thing. I can't remember the exact words, but that was the thrust of it. He thought it was a decision that he made to it go It was down. one where you would, I mean, did Cassini need to come out? Oh, I guess maybe, possibly, but it was, it wasn't a goal-scoring opportunity. Yellow card, and then uh, Bailey Peacock Farrell could just sit grinning on the sidelines um, where he can do no harm. While we're on goalkeepers, um, Dean Henderson as well, just for being the way he was. Yeah, we can't really, for legal reasons, go into the uh, the substance of the accusations that came from the crowd for Google it. 85 of the 90 minutes. Google will have some answers here. But his, uh, yeah, one of the worst parts of the game was watching him after full time striding around with his hands to his ears while um, 25,000 people <laughs> chanted... Accusations. Stuff. Yes, accusations. Stuff. It wasn't one of those moments that made you really particularly fall in love with the game. <laughs> um, when you think the, the sublime skills of uh, of John Charles back in the day. I'm sure matches in the 1950s never ended with uh, a goalkeeper charging around the pitch angrily while everybody... I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they did. Maybe we look back with rose-tinted spectacles. But something about that whole moment, one that we didn't put a goal past him as well, because we really needed him to crack and he, he, he looked ready to. But two, just uh, the, even Billy Sharp at the end was going to say, just cut this out because you're being a dick now. And also cut out the other stuff because because uh, that'll get you into trouble as well. <laughs> Could get us into trouble as well if we, if we keep talking about it. Feels like we've got a few fairly sturdy Sheffield United related uh, potential villains there. Do you want to name one? I kind of feel Dermot Gallagher deserves it because he's annoyed me earlier this season as well. I can't remember the decision, but he's been equally wrong about something before. And I know he's a professional referee, but I know better than him. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And I don't want to give it to anybody actually at Sheffield United because they're going to uh, take promotion um, from us and that should be enough. So Dermot Gallagher. Okay. And on to the Andy Hughes Hero Award, uh, an award that's there to recognise somebody who's brought us happiness, symbolising all the qualities that Hughesy embodied, uh, fighting spirit, positivity, happiness. Who is in this time? I'd like to nominate uh, quickly 
Pontus Janssen for uh, his performance towards the end of the game, going in goal to defend a free kick and then standing in the goal mouth. And then when all the players turn to him and say, well, what sort of wall do you want? Putting his hands out and... I mean, I I can't say that these were his words exactly, but I got the impression he said, I don't fucking know. Um, <laughs> there was a, a great deal of disorganisation, but I admired, of all the players, If given Berardi wasn't on the pitch, all the players I wanted to see in uh, in gloves and a keeper top, it's uh, Pontus Radaby. Um, I don't think he had a save to make. No. Which I'm quite relieved about in a way. Because he couldn't really move his legs either at that point, <laughs> could he? No. But that he then ended up attacking a corner as well. It just... There's an element of it where it was frustrating and sad that this is how our uh, our big match ended up, but it was also wonderful. When great. you went up for that corner, there was a bit of me thinking, this is all going to play into the folklore of this season when the injured defender who was in net went up and scored on a corner, but then it didn't happen. So I just trudged out of the stadium. Maybe for not scoring, you should be feeling that, <laughs> actually. Seems like a worthy nominee, but anybody else? Oh, and I was just going to mention as well, apparently there was some talk of him not wanting to wear gloves. <laughs> apparently he had to be persuaded to put gloves on, which again, we could have been out for the rest of the season with like five broken fingers. Sore hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to nominate Bielsa just for his continued presence and bringing his joy. But just the way he took no shit off a of Sky Reporter when he, he said, what do you think happened? And the Sky went, oh, I'm not, I'm impartial, I'm not saying. And he went, I asked you. And he went, we've not got any more time. And he went, yeah, I've got time. It's a pre-recorded mm. interview. What are you on about? <laughs> it is not true that yeah. there is not enough time. Brilliant. It's just like, most managers would have just let that pass. But Bielsa, and he did it with, he did it, gave him a, a stare that suggested he would potentially eat his face or something. Mm-hmm. And then just shook his hand at the end while then, like going, you're a fucking liar. Yep. While this gentleman translates me calling you a fucking liar into your language, he is also going to stare at you as if you could eat your face off. It was great because that reporter fell into the trap of a lot of uh, Sky and British media reports of just sheer laziness. Because if he'd said that, if he'd asked that question of any other standard manager, it was like, uh, oh, you said you you felt your team should have won today. Um, why didn't they win? They're probably just going to go, oh, yeah, well, like I say, it was pretty unlucky. Well, Bielsa is the one to say, I didn't say that. What's the basis of your question? What are you based, where, where is this coming from? And the twat, don't know who it was, so cowardly to then just go, I'm just going to move on to another question. Nope, you don't move on to another question. We're going to we're going to talk about what this what this is all about. Why are you putting words in my mouth? We have to stop the interview now. Please. I think it, it threw him because it's not what he's used to. He's used to that very benign yep. vanilla question and answer thing. I also think what was beautiful is it had just got slightly misconstrued in translation. That was all. It was just a slight crossover where he didn't realise he'd asked that question, but Bielsa had taken it that way, I think. And Bielsa just, went full Paxman on him, yeah. which was great. He was just like, you answer the question. Well, that's it. He was just asking the stock question that he hadn't really thought about what he was asking. Just, oh, this is, I'll just ask the manager. He thought he should have won. Should it have been a red card? Are you happy with the lads? And then suddenly somebody's there listening to the questions and analysing the substance of what your inquiry actually relates to. Like, what? Any more runners and riders for heroes then, or shall we pick one of those two, Pontus or Bielsa? It's, it's a weak nomination, really, but David Martin, the Millwall keeper, was once a Leeds legend, you, I'm sure you remember his, his loan spell from Liverpool. I remember right? those... Uh, he played zero games. Those weeks fondly. <laughs> Zero games, um, maybe, maybe it was on the bench, but um, Millwall were heading to the FA Cup semi-final on the way to Wembley. All the flat cap wearing gents in the crowd are looking, are looking really happy, probably looking forward to punching a few kids on, the, uh, on a nice family trip out for a semi-final. And then a real weak cross goes in, which I think is potentially going wide or maybe hitting the post. Um, and David Martin somehow 
manages to just knock it into the net, then they lose on penalties. I didn't realise it was him. I also uh, had him confused with Alan Martin, um, which would have been extraordinary. Played the same number of games, I believe. <laughs> Not to be confused with Nigel Martin. Similar surname, different spelling. I'm quite happy to give it to David Martin because that did kind of save the weekend at the end. Millwall getting knocked out. I was uncomfortable with it being the good news story of the FA Cup as well. That a, a sort of a, it'd be kind of a giant killing. And Steve Morrison in an FA Cup semi final. He didn't miss the penalty. That was the only thing because mm. he, he could have missed the crucial penalty, which I was I was praying for, but sadly he took it away. But at least this mistake has taken any prospect of those like broadsheet interviews with the the rugged old pro bravely leading Millwall to the to Wembley. Do they still have the semi-finals at Wembley? They do. I mean, Morrison's last appearance at Wembley was uh, when he was crying about Millwall's fans invading the pitch and ruining his day. So maybe a repeat of that would have been worth it. But um, I'm happy that his own goalkeeper ruined his day. Anything that ruins Steve Morrison's day. Bit of a left field one and we're feeding on scraps a bit. But yeah, why not? I'm right behind that. David Martin, hero. And a slightly abridged episode of this podcast this time out, because we've got no games to look forward to. We'll preview the Millwall game next time out. However, a quick glance across the remaining fixtures with eight to go. Is it on? Is it not on? I know for the purposes of semi-humour, I've been kind of relentlessly positive, but genuinely, cards on the table, I still think we're going to go up. I've got a, a feeling it's our year, this one. I think Sheffield United probably fade. Norwich, probably not going to catch them now. I also think it's our year to... Uh to lose in the playoffs finishing third and losing in the playoffs to Preston and we'll finish uh, we'll probably finish about 10 points clear of fourth as well just to make it really upsetting we've been by far the one of the most deserving teams probably played the best football been quite unlucky in some games like the Sheffield United game we'll be able to look back on when we finish a point behind them and then we'll be say, miles clear of fourth and then we'll lose to Preston I am I know we're supposed to be looking forward to the remaining fixtures I do want to before we contemplate those I'm just really glad that we don't have a game for a couple of weeks I just feel after the the Sheffield United game and the the letdown, I really feel like we need a breather. Come back to Millwall at home, a couple of weeks refreshed and kind of ready. And there's some somebody suggesting it's. I think it's a good point that it it will work in our favour a little bit. Sheffield United's momentum could be knocked off by having a couple of games just to sit around in the dressing room on, you know, messing about on Snapchat or whatever they're all going to be doing. And Norwich are unusually good. Something's got to be for Norwich in the next two weeks. They're due some bad luck. Maybe Rob Price can take over their medical team for a couple of weeks and come back with some uh, useful bits for some of our players. We've sent people on scouting missions all season and got into trouble. Do you reckon we can maybe sneak somebody into Norwich's training ground and just nick some body parts that might be the mission for the next two weeks bare fingers I mean if they were to take a couple of Pookie's legs I'd be fine with that <laughs> how many has he got oh, this bo- one- both of them would be fine wasn't this a Simon Morris idea <laughs> I don't think that was ever proven was it <laughs> I don't know he went to prison for something <laughs> But yeah, so a chance to refresh. And then I was thinking about, I kind of alluded to it earlier on, there's only Sheffield Wednesday that has that same atmosphere that the Sheffield United game had. And I don't think it all generates at the same level until obviously Villa at home and Ipswich away are just going to be, they're in their own category. But between now and then, Millwall, they like to think that they're important to us, but there's nothing to it. Birmingham, Preston, Wigan, Brentford. There are a bunch of teams that you just, if it was any other season and it was any other time of the season, you just look at them, just beat them. Just sodding beat them. And it's good to have that. It feels like we may as well. That fixture list to me looks like Reading, 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 Sheffield Wednesday, Reading, Reading, Aston Villa, Ipswich Town. So if we look at it like that, 
<laughs> we can't fail, really, but we will. We'll find a way. We'll find a way. We won't. We're going to go up. Stay positive. It's going to happen. I mean, I was very, very positive before the Sheffield United game. Like, I was really positive. I was in a really good mood. And look how that ended up. Well, watch out then. After the international break, issue nine of our fanzine will be out for that Millwall game. Links to the merch and the magazines and the subscriptions all at thesquareball.net. And please do cast your eyes and your ears over our Extra Ball podcast. It's the podcast that goes hand in hand with this. And you can find that also at thesquareball.net. Are those hands that we've nicked from Norwich? May well be. We'll be back next week. And thanks for listening to this one. We'll speak to you soon. The Squareball Podcast. Podcast.